Hello, and welcome to another Leadership Amplified podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Morley, and I'm delighted to bring you this episode. In the podcast, we profile leaders who are great role models, those who inspire us to continue to be curious about what good leadership is like, uh, what it's like to be led by a a great leader, um, and they show us how to lead well. My guest for this episode is Dr. Tina Sulis, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Neuroscience Trials Australia. Neuroscience Trials Australia is a world-leading contract research organisation that specialises in all aspects of neuroscience clinical development. They deliver global standard clinical trial projects for pharmaceutical, biotechnology and device clients. In her current role as CEO, Tina has successfully grown this business on average 39% per year, uh, thus turning it into a sustainable and world-recognised organisation. When Tina finished her PhD in diabetic complications at the University of Melbourne, she became interested in industry and so she joined a leading pharmaceutical company. She went on then to have a number of project management roles in different organisations, including in a, a leadership position at an ASX 200 listed company. Now, during those roles, she refined her leadership skills as well as deepened her expertise in all aspects of the product development cycle. She's been at Neuroscience Trials Australia now for almost 10 years, and in the last of those three and a half years, she has been the CEO. She is passionate about mentoring future industry leaders and advocating for the Australian research and development community. And her goal is to bring as many treatment options as possible to Australian patients and to make the industry even better on the global stage. So I am very excited to be interviewing Dr. Tina Sulis today. Tina, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm excited to be here. That's terrific. That's fantastic. So in usual podcast uh, fashion, we're going to start off with your leadership journey. Um, And I wondered if you would outline for us, Tina, some of the, you know, your leadership story, uh, maybe some of the challenges you faced, some key learning moments and what it is that you think has helped you to achieve your level of success as a leader. Sure, I'd be happy to do that and part some of my, I guess, journey in uh, talking about getting to where I've got today and what a journey it's been. (laughs) Um, I I started off thinking I was going to become a dentist. Right. And then I realised that I could not, and this is no, you know, offence to the amazing people, dental work people do out there, that I couldn't spend the rest of my life looking down people's mouths for a living. Mm -hmm. But I loved I was curious about science. I love the medical aspects, um, you know, of all the things that the medical field does, the allied health. So I decided to go down the pathway of being a scientist. Mm. And then that led me, of course, to my very first role. And I've been really fortunate in my life that in my very, even for my very first role, I always had amazing mentors that I could rely on. And In fact, my first role as a research assistant in the Department of Medicine um, at Melbourne University, Mm. Austin campus, had amazing leaders that I still keep in contact to this day. And um, they took, they'd taken me under my wing and 
you know, always, I guess, the, the values coming out of who we are um, stay with us long. It doesn't matter what opportunity arises. But I, I recall that I, it was my first role and in my mind and still stands true today, I, I think you, you can't be super, super fussy about the very first role when you're a young graduate. Right. You need to take the opportunities that uh, present themselves and run with them because even to this day, I think it stands true about with all the people that I talk to, you just don't know where that's going to lead you to. And mm. certainly that was the case in the amazing laboratory, uh, looking at uh, diabetes complications, that sort of uh, doing animal work as well as clinical work. The team that I worked with took me under their wing. Uh, we did work as a team, amazing talented group of clinicians and scientists. And because of being uh, included in a lot of the discussions, a lot of planning, uh, we were exposed even as young uh, PhD students. Um, they, they encouraged us back then to, for example, uh, obtain um, and apply for travel grants. So we were, even as young scientists, exposed to the world of science and the world post doing a PhD, what that might look like. But of course, um, that was a two-way street because we worked really hard in the laboratory <laughs> to enable ourselves to publish papers, which is even more important these days, um, as well as see what science, what else science had to offer. And so when I finished my PhD, it was uh, at the crossroads whether I stay in science and go and do a postdoc uh, position at Columbia University. Uh, I decided not to do that because it meant at that time I would still have to come back to Australia at some stage and keep applying for grants. So my professor at the, at the time suggested I move into the industry and the industry is the pharmaceutical industry. So then I guess my journey really began then uh, moving into various roles. And in fact, my very first role in the industry was working for a very well-known pharmaceutical company. And it was actually the worst year of my life back then. Right. And I reflect. <laughs> I reflect. So far, Tina, the story yeah. has sounded fabulous. I mean, what a great introduction <laughs> to working life, working in the yes. team, having mentor. Yes. Right. And then something else happened. <laughs> and it was because I wasn't included in what was going on in the team because it was, I was yeah. a contractor. And it was very different team dynamics. But in one way, it was good to be exposed to that, to realise how good, how amazing things were in the lab. And that this perception of, you know, having, having a role outside of, of basic science isn't for everybody. So mm. I actually finished my one-year contract. And that's another take-home message to anyone who's embarking on this journey. If it's not for you, just stick it out a little bit and just see where, again, it's going to lead you. Because one thing I knew back then is that I wanted this 12-month role and experience on my CV because that wasn't going to harm anyone and it was actually going to be advantageous. So yeah. I remember going back to the laboratory thinking, well, well, you know, if that's what the industry is about, I don't want to be part of that. Right. And then a recruiter called me and said, well, there's this amazing role going and you need to go and talk to these people. It's a great company. And she convinced me to go to this interview, which was another industry role. And I remember driving down Glenferry Road thinking, Oh my goodness, why did I say why did I say I was going to this interview? I'm just wasting everyone's time and my own time. Well, I left that interview thinking I really want to work with these people. Wow. <laughs> and the rest <laughs> is history because that embarked, that embarked on the career and really got me to where I am today. And in fact, again, the two people that uh, employed me, I still work with. 
um, directly and indirectly. And again, if I look back, they were they were leaders, but they made they made everybody feel included as part of their team. We worked really hard. It was back in the days where as a clinical research associate, I was traveling three times a week. Mm. I traveled so much on ANSET back then that I knew the names of the crew members on particular yeah, flights. Wow. So, wow. so, but, and we didn't have laptops back then either. So it was not as easy in some ways. Um, mm. Mind you, we didn't, it wasn't a 24 seven, you know, expectation of answering phones and emails and, all of ungodly hours. But yeah. what I did learn was again, that again, working part of, part of a team, putting your, putting your hand up to learn, to be seconded to various positions, to be exposed, particularly when you're early on in your career is very powerful because mm-hmm. then you can experience that particular role for a little while as a person and you can be seen as a proactive, can do, reliable person as well. Um, from that role, it became obvious that my love wasn't really for the big pharmaceutical clients, even though I found them interesting. I really liked the smaller biotechnology clients because I wanted to be part of the team. It's very important to me and to help them solve whatever it is that they had to solve in their smaller virtual-like companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, therefore, I became more of a biotech specialist uh, in the Melbourne office. Yeah. Then a role came up for a very successful Australian company. And I took on the clinical director role for that company. And again, that exposed me to that the GFC had just happened. So everybody else, you know, financial, you know, systems and, and banks were falling apart mm. all over the world. But we had enough money to take a particular product to the end, to, to license it out and do all the clinical trials, which we did. And uh, we would meet as a team uh, pretty much every day. So I guess looking back, the leadership there was that we all uh, took ownership of whatever we had been charged with. In my case, it was the budgets and times uh, and design of the clinical mm-hmm. trials that we had to be, we had to do them in a certain time. We only had a certain amount of money to do them in, had to be done. But we would meet as a senior management team every day. And we would also then disseminate that information to the people that we were in charge of. So if I reflect back, transparency and embarking don't don't not keeping people in the dark about what's going on whether that's good bad or otherwise is very powerful then because people feel included and they feel that they've got ownership of whatever role it is that they're doing as well Um, and I was really fortunate to have um, have a successful experience and we were one of the very few companies back then to do an amazing deal uh, and license out that product one of the few Australian companies I should say and yeah. from that role, I then took on this current role. Um, and that has been an amazing journey because it was at the time where the Pfizer's, the AstraZeneca's, the Biden's of the world were all, were all um, exiting out of um, investing in neurology and CNS. And a couple of my friends said, are you crazy? Why are you moving into neurology? Everyone else is not investing. But I thought logically about it and tried to be strategic as much as I could and thought, well, people are still not going to stop. They're going to have strokes. They're not going to stop having strokes. Mm. Mental health is still an issue. Alzheimer's isn't going to go away. And I thought in my mind it would be a cyclical uh, investment by the companies. And certainly that's what's happened. I mean, neurology was um, in the top three investments of 2020 mm. um, in our industry, um, mm. and, uh, followed by, uh, I think it was oncology and, and, and another area. So 
I took on the challenge because I do like a challenge. I always, uh, I love one of my favorite poems and I'm digressing here, but is, is Robert Frost's poem called The Road Less Traveled. And I always think that represents oh, well. my life because I, I never <laughs> seem to pick the easy path. I like a challenge. <laughs> For those um, who don't know the poem, Tina, can you give us the punchline? Oh, now, now I've gone blank on it, but I think um, I'll have to come back to you. But I think an I, I took the path less travelled. is and what that should, has made all the difference. All the difference. That's it. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> that has made all the difference. And in my case, that has absolutely made all the difference because yeah. I'm, I'm really proudly sitting here that after, you know, being in this role now for nine and a half years, I started off with six people and I had a vision uh, to grow this particular entity, you know, the contract research organisation. Yeah. And today we stand at over 40 people and probably another 12 to 20 people that we engage with on a regular basis. We live in a competitive world. We're an Australian company. We're tiny compared to lots of other competitors, but we are doing a good job um, and we have a brand awareness out there. And I think, again, I've always led by example, hard work, honesty, transparency, having an open door policy. I think it makes a difference that we are head office, if you like. We, we're not dependent on waiting for someone in, you know, a head office in the US or somewhere in Europe to mm. tell us what we can and can't do. But that also has meant that I've empowered people and, and often I will second someone into a particular role and they will say, well, I haven't done this before. And I will say to them, but you're going to look back in six months' time and you're going to think, well, look how much I've learned. And I'm going to be there. You know, there's lots of support around you. And I think that's a gift that we can give the people that work around us. We can't do everything ourselves, but, you know, we need to look at how the, the people that we're charged in with looking after and we are responsible for, we have a duty of care, not only for their safety day-to-day -day in their offices, but also in, in developing them, them as well, because particularly mm. in the uh, pharmaceutical clinical trials industry, it's a very small world. Um, and the chances are we're going to work with these people. Um, but it also gives me satisfaction mm. that in one way, they're you know, the class of Tina, if you like, or it's a bit obnoxious, really, but you know they're they're part no, of. No, 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 what you mean? <laughs> yeah, you, you've, you've made a contribution to their growth in the same way yeah. that some of the people you've talked about have done for you. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'd like yes. to, and you know, there never is a week that that passes without someone reaching out to me and saying, "I just want a little bit of advice. I'm finishing off my PhD." And I'd like a little bit of advice on where to next. And I do make time for those people because mm. one thing I do remember is that when I finished my PhD and I was in that position, it was really hard to find advice. Um, and it was really hard. But there were a lot of doors that just people didn't have time to talk to you. And mm. I don't want to be that person. I'd like to help and give it back a little bit, pay it back a little bit now, if you like. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and that, I mean, one of the things that it really strikes me in, in listening to your story is, is how much of the experimenter, you know, that, that person just prepared to experiment and see how things 
turned out, which is not always what research is doing, but, but really what, what sits underneath research, that seems to have been a very strong theme um, and, and a part of that success. It's almost like I can experiment with this. I'll give this a go. I'll see how it works out. But the other thing that goes along with that, you know, being prepared to cut your losses and to have a real clarity about the things that matter, like you've mentioned a number of times, feeling included, feeling a part of the team um, and working in that sort of team dynamic. When you think about those sorts of lessons, I'm really keen to hear you just talk about how you, you have a little, but, you know, how do you really work with those values around people and how to be a leader in your role as CEO at uh, Neuroscience Trials Australia. I've heard you talk about this previously and I'm inspired by it. (laughs) Thank you, Karen. Well, I think I try and keep things simple. I don't think you need to have layers and layers of bureaucracy. Uh, So we try and keep, and I guess it's advantageous that we are not thousands of people at Neuroscience Trials Australia. So we do have an open door policy. We do have quite a flat structure, uh, even though we do have senior titles and uh, we just all pull up our sleeves and help. So we lead by example where we can. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, uh, we have lots of communication. Um, And for example, during COVID last year, um, we all were home-based. In fact, we've been working from home now for for a year almost, it would be <laughs> March, and I wasn't one of the leaders, and I hear different stories around, I wasn't one of the leaders to say, okay, now it's all good, let's rush back to the office, because I know we have to go slowly, slowly, it's still uncertain times, and I didn't want to destabilise my team who had been working so hard in such uncertain times. So throughout COVID, we easily transitioned and we're I guess lucky because of the systems we work with it's a global industry everything is pretty much electronic we transitioned uh, to working from home we we did that successfully and one of the things that I decided we were going to do rather than meet every quarter which we would do as a team because we were just getting too big to meet every week it was really paramount for us to meet every week even for half an hour which Mm -hmm. we still do to this day because that way we could all still feel connected Um, in times of uncertainty, I made uh, an executive decision that I then also told my management board that it was really important that we all stayed intact as an organisation for when times were better. And thank Mm -hmm. goodness, because we are rushed off our feet now, we have never been busier. Um, Unlike other organisations in our industry who at the time of COVID either reduced people's salaries or cut people's hours, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to invest in our people to show them, um, and hopefully we would get that back at the end, which is proving yep. the case to be. I, mm. I thought, um, and, and one thing in such a fast-paced, changing environment was that information was really the most important thing we could provide to our people. Information about mental health and well-being, and that was a, the Flory, who is our parent organisation, did an amazing, t- um, uh, you know, work of that, of, of, of telling everybody about resources and having some webinars and providing counselling. So we were able to tap into that as well. But also information about regulations that were changing on a daily basis in our industry. Um, So that was really important because we work in such a highly regulated, Mm. you know, we work in an evidence-based environment. So 
that had to continue and that was of the most importance. Um, we stepped up some of the quality aspects of, uh, of roles and uh, we made sure that our standard operating procedures were, you know, changed where they had to be. Uh, so we tried to bring that all together and just people that, for example, that lived on their own, we had someone buddy up and make sure that they, people would check up on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess Lee, just I would always re- I remember, you know, around April, May, June, July last year, getting on the phone every week and saying, it's okay not to feel okay. Um, mm-hmm. But because I think people that work in an organisation look to the leader and if the leader is panicking, they're going to start panicking as well. Um, so even though none of us still know what, what's ahead, the, the best we can do is protect our, our people by taking that un, uncertainty away for the away from them as much as mm. possible and letting them get on with the job they have to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a real com- combination of the leadership, care and support, but also that consistency and availability of information so people can yes. have that certainty and, uh, you know, uncertainty is one of the most stressful things. Uh, yes, we, because I think information, um, we're all trained in our roles as clinical trialists to work with information. It's an evidence-based mm. science that we work in. So the team that I have are used to uh, thinking in that way. So I just upped that ante and made sure that they had the information as much as we all had about the environment that was constantly changing, about the global environment that was constantly changing about them. So we'd also bring in people to talk to us. We did some wellness and well-being satisfaction type of surveys. And I remember in May last year, you know, the great majority of people within the organisation were very satisfied at the level of um, information uh, and communication that, that, that was being uh, tra- transcribed through to them. And because in my mind, I had to get them to do their job. I had to get them to continue their job. So what could I do to help them? I couldn't actually do their job, but I could help, <laughs> the, you know, support them, have a bit of a framework underneath them so that they didn't have to worry about that themselves. Yeah, if you like. fantastic. Fantastic. And so, Tina, um, with the development of COVID vaccines uh, being so important right now, given that clinical trials are critical to their success, you know, I could actually go off tangent and ask you about clinical trials, but I won't. Let's keep ourselves focused on the leadership part of that. You know, there people are um, really excited and interested and highly anticipating um, the vaccine and where it will take there. There's a lot of public pressure and there's a lot riding on clinical trials in particular to get vaccines um, to be effective and available to the public. But from as a leader working in that um, area, you know, what have been the particular challenges in addition to what you've already talked about that you face given you know that public nature but also um i suppose the consequences if things go wrong really which are a bit different from some industries yes i mean it's a really incredible time to be a clinical trialist first of all i'm really proud and honored to work in this industry which has never in my career been in the limelight as it has now (laughs) i I don't ever remember a time in my career to date that you turn on the six o'clock news and front and headline are clinical trials and development of vaccines and everyone has the has a, a 
you know, at least a, a reading knowledge, a workable knowledge, if you like, what a phase one or phase three clinical trial is and what it means to develop. Yes, but so, <laughs> maybe you have to be careful what you wish for. So previously yes. nobody knew what a clinical trial exactly. was. Now everybody's an expert. <laughs> yes. So for yeah. us, I can honestly yeah. say that there is an overwhelming amount of information, even for us as clinical trialists. Right. Uh, it has slowed down a little bit, but initially that was overwhelming in terms of the amount of information by the really large, not only the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is Australia's regulatory body, but the largest one in the world is the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA. In and certainly US. we leaned yeah. towards publications by the FDA and we would disseminate that to our clients uh, to the public, because we were getting emails from the public even about what does this mean? Can I be involved? Should I be worried? So we mm. would always make sure that whatever information we passed on to either a member of the public, to our clients, to our, to our community, to our network, it was an official piece of information yep. by someone like the FDA. It wasn't, I mean, Dr. Google is an amazing thing, but there's a lot of non-information on Dr. <laughs> Google. So um, as a leader, that was up to myself, a senior executive team and our quality team to actually um, review any information that went out and, and also mm. keep a record of, uh, you, you know, a body of evidence there that we could tap into. Um, it meant that we had to ourselves be agile and adaptable more so than we ever have been because the rules were changing daily, the information was changing daily, there was so much uncertainty, uncertainty around that it meant that a lot of our work practices had to change. And in, in fact, um, one of the things that's empowered me as a leader moving forward in clinical trials and also our community and our industry is that I'm really excited by the future because a lot of things have become virtual now. Uh, mm. electronic medical records it sort of pushed that some some of the hospitals in Australia were did have electronic medical health records for example now the majority of them are which means as clinical trialists we can you know obtain and audit that information at a much mm. quicker rate which ultimately means that we can get products to market quicker and safer because we've actually got real-time information that we are have always relied on but wasn't always available to us so quickly um, and so transparently, the rules are changing also for cybersecurity, which we've had to up at our level. At the, at mm. the rules are changing from a regulatory perspective. And as a leader, um, I was, I've been really honoured to be part of uh, some global and also Australian working groups to make sure from different perspectives, whether you're a patient, a clinical trialist, a pharmaceutical or biotechnology company, those rules are going to be workable for everybody in the future. So I feel that in terms of clinical trial, being a leader in clinical trials, it will be, it should ultimately result in uh, products getting to market quicker. And I mean, look at what's happened with the COVID vaccine. How amazing, what an amazing story that is to get mm. um, such an important, you know, unmet need um, addressed quicker than so quickly. ever before. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And successfully, which is amazing. Successfully, yes. It's amazing. Yeah. It's what we can all do to, when we all pull together and work as a team. And also one of the things as a leader has been tapping into other regulatory agencies, other companies, which traditionally in our industry don't give away information hmm. so willingly, if you like. Yeah. 
So has it meant that people or potential competitors have been more prepared to be collaborative? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it's meant. Um, Before COVID, there were some initiatives, global initiatives by some of the largest pharmaceutical companies for data sharing. Um, And that, again, has been sped up now. And um, those initiatives hopefully will stay as part of the way we do uh, clinical trials. And uh, that data will allow us to better design clinical trials so we don't have to unnecessarily do anything, if you like. Uh, we, we learn from even, even failures we learn from as leaders as well. Yeah. yeah. And so if you predict what your industry might look like in the next 12 months, given the amount of change that's happened. Are you, do you think we're going to see, well, what do you think we're going to see, consolidation or further development? I mean, obviously, we're still in the early days of the COVID vaccine rollout, but, but thinking more broadly um, about the industry, what do you see happening over the next 12 months? I see a lot of, yeah, great question, Karen, because I see a lot of red tape. Um, this will be oh. COVID. <laughs> No, 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 a lot of, sorry, I should, I should rephrase that, a lot of red tape being reduced. Oh, so that's a lot good. of bureaucracy. Yes, sorry, I should have, <laughs> I didn't phrase, I was looking at your face going, no, 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 not red tape, red tape reduced. I forgot to add that word. Um, that's good. Yes, so I think the COVID, the, the development of a successful COVID vaccine or various COVID vaccines, Keep, let's keep that in mind as well, not just yes. one, but various different products for different age groups and different situations, right, um, will be used as a case study. And there will be pressure put on regulatory authorities to say, well, we did it for COVID. Why can't we do it for this? Now, pre-COVID, there were already um, initiatives for uh, fast tracking of medicines with large unmet needs, particularly in mm-hmm. diseases, such as motor neuron disease, for example. So that aspect, together with the quickness of you know, the fast tracking of a vaccine will put more pressure on regulatory authorities mm. and more, more pressure on different companies. Mm. And that ultimately means that myself as a clinical trialist will have to find ways with other leaders to do things quicker as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And safer. So, yeah. So, I mean, it is an interesting kind of combination, um, isn't it, of that ability to be super, super safe and to respond to the regulatory requirements, hoping that they're sensible and reasonable, um, as well as being very agile and being able to move very quickly as diseases change or all sorts of things change in the environment, which would be, yeah, would be amazing. So so that's talking more along the risk-to-benefit ratio of anything Mm. that we do, because that's Mm. really what developing a new product, whether it's a COVID vaccine, it's always going to be that balancing that risk-to-benefit. Yeah. Um, and we find that the risk will be shared, right? Because we, we, a lot of the regulatory agencies will then ask the leaders to uh, share and, and document um, what happens once, once it's out in the community. Because being a clinical trialist, it's, it's a pretty um, protected scenario where you can only expose a product you're developing in a certain indication to a certain amount of, of patients in a certain amount of time. Mm. So, so now we're going to see more real-world use and yeah. more development in adaptive clinical trials. Uh, and then we're seeing that already in our industry, and I'm going off on a tangent too now, but we're seeing, you know, <laughs> uh, this um, uh, development I'll, I'll just of, away. It's so fascinating. Yeah, so we're seeing that in, in areas like oncology now, um, in even other areas of neurological unmet needs where mm. um, a, a company A might have a product 
and they're not sure exactly what type of disease in neurology that might, you know, um, treat. So they give it to, may, they might have six patients with a brain tumour, they might have six patients with uh, motor neuron disease, they might have six patients with uh, Alzheimer's disease, and they might treat all three cohorts and then decide what indication. Right. So, and then sort of adapt the trial to the the safest scenario and the, the most uh, likely efficacy efficacious scenarios yeah, scenario, I yeah. Say. so yeah. that I mean that does open up a whole lot of conversations because it's not yes. we've got a problem with a particular disease and we want to treat that but there's we've got solutions that we don't know what the problem is yet, yes if you like. so, on, yeah, so as so one of the things the industry has been not just so there's part of that in, in being a clinical trialist part of it is about the design and the risk to benefit ratio but mm -hmm. the other part is obviously the data integrity um, yeah. And the design of the databases and the security of the databases, the quality and the integrity of the information that we're capturing. And during COVID, we, that has really ramped up as well in terms of the type of systems we're now using, the access to those. In, uh, and and I'm, I'm thinking even the next 10 years, patients themselves will probably have access and be in control of their own data. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. so really amazing so, turn. A to, lot of yes, a lot, a of, lot changes. of change. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, your organisation is kind of rolling with that and, and really prospering as a consequence. So that that's very exciting. You've said some fantastic things, really, about the value of um, support and mentoring from more experienced people early on in your career, um, as well as that idea of kind of experimenting and deciding, yeah, I'll stay here for 12 months, even though mm, it's not maybe what I thought it would be and it's not where I want to stay, but, you know, I've, I've got a reason for, for staying here. So what are the lessons that you would like to pass on to younger leaders who are, um, you know, at the early stages of their careers? They might be researchers or have a similar um, educational background to you, but they might not. What, what do you think they should be focusing on? I think the lessons are, I often reflect on my working week where I do get contacted and make time to talk to young researchers or those a year away from, you know, completing their PhD, for example. And I've got to say a lesson is be brave and reach out to as many people as you can, even if they're connected to someone else. I'll get someone to introduce you, most people will take time out and talk to you and, and, you know, give you half an hour of their time and talk to you about what exists out in the industry and where you can find some more information or connect you with someone. Uh, most people will do that. And the bravest thing you can do is actually reach out. And the worst thing that they can do is say no. And, and yeah. then you don't take it personally. You just move on to the next person. But take the time in your career to do the homework, but be also be open-minded about op opportunities that, present themselves because you just don't know where that opportunity is going to take you mm. uh, attend webinars attend you know when we can I guess face-to-face -face meetings um, read lots um, you know subscribe to blogs and and you know know what's going on because it might spark up an interest and take you down a different pathway that you never even knew existed yeah in some ways your career experience highlights the the gap or the the big jump between you know being a researcher or a PhD um, student um, and 
than actually working and having a role in an organization. And I think that's a big gap for everyone. Um, And do you have any last piece of advice about how people might think about taking that step and actually kind of projecting themselves over that abyss to the other side? (laughs) Yes, it still is a hurdle. However, I... I know that I'm on several working groups now addressing the shortage of talent and how we can get folks from scientific roles, for example, but those wanting to move into being a clinical trialist and not necessarily having that experience. So Australia is actively working on some initiatives, which include internships, um, some other courses throughout the universities uh, about making that jump into the next career. Um, So keep your eyes and ears open for for those because they are being supported on a federal level and even on a state level. And I think it's paramount because Australia currently is really hot in the world of of clinical trials and they're great innovation, high value roles, um, and they're not going to go away. So um, I, I think it's great that in the next, you know, two to five years, they will be addressed and we will have opportunities for early career stage uh, folks uh, to, to move into those roles. And more, more importantly, women, um, the, being a clinical trialist is a, also a great role if you want to be a working mum as well, because some of my most amazing team members are just that. Um, this role is a, is a, we work globally, so it really doesn't matter. You can sit at home and do your role it's a 24-7 global industry, so you don't necessarily have to be there nine to five in your role as well. Um, so if you think about that and, and, you know, planning to have a family and a career, you can do that as being part of a clinical, a clinical trial so, team as well. So, so it's an, an industry or a role or perhaps under your leadership, Tina. Um, <laughs> it's just possible to operate in a very flexible way and manage yes. your hours to kind of yes. um, suit your life as well as the work that needs to be done. Well, I don't think any leader can expect that their staff should be on calls at six or seven o'clock in the morning and then 10 o'clock at night and be available nine to five as well. And I've always, it has to be a win-win and you yeah. always get much more back from people if they feel that they can work within the confines of their particular work-life balance, what works for them. Yeah. 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 That's great. That's fantastic. So they're almost um, fitting last words for our conversation, Tina. But I will say, is there anything else you would like to add that you haven't had a chance to say or a final piece of advice? Thank you very much for this opportunity to impart, you know, my experience, I guess, to to with regards to my career and uh, make that first step and talk to people and reach out and um, be brave and be open-minded in your careers. Yeah. Fantastic advice. Tina, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen.